a kind of logic or kind of intellect, something responsible for the order and symmetry in nature. And so they coined a term for this ultimate purpose. They called it the logos, or as we translate into the English, the word. And the preoccupation of Greek philosophy was to identify this logos, the word, the ultimate reason behind reality. In essence, they read the world around them in order to pick up on some expression of this unseen purpose behind the seeable world. Despite their great wisdom, though, all the Greek philosophers failed to answer this ultimate question. None of them could define or really clarify the logos. Their wisdom was summed up in the words of another man who quoted Robert Frost and then added a phrase himself, life goes on, (laughs) I just forgot why. The Apostle John wrote to a Greek audience, and in this very first chapter, he answers the question that had stumped all their famed philosophers for centuries. John has good news. This word we've been listening for, it's been heard. The unseen has been revealed. There is a God, and He has made Himself known in this natural world. He has revealed a word about Himself. The Logos that the Greeks were searching for was not some primal force. Rather, it was a person named Jesus. Jesus is the reason behind all reality. He is the Logos behind the cosmos. Jesus is the residence of absolute truth, of undiluted love, of eternal life. Life goes on, and hey, it's all about Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus, and you'll find purpose for your life. John writes, in the beginning was the Word, or the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Here is one of Scripture's clearest statements on the deity of Christ. The Word was God. Jesus was in the beginning. He created all things. Jesus was God. John says in verse 4, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. You see, the quality of life that Jesus enjoyed shined like a bright light. But being accustomed to darkness, the world was blinded by this light. Verse 11 tells us that He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. Even His own people, the Jews, rejected Jesus. But to those who receive God's light, He gives them the right to be the sons of God. The Creator births the life of Jesus in the heart of anyone who comes to Him and embraces Him by faith. And this is why verse 13 tells us that we're born again spiritually, not by blood, nor by the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man. In essence, not by breed, or by deed, or by decree, but by the will of God. He has given us the right to become the children of God, and we do so when we embrace Jesus. The Greeks look behind the cosmos for this unseen cause. It was as if the Logos had created the universe, then gone into hiding, or so they said. But John says that Jesus not only created the universe, he joined its plight. He shares in its predicament. Verse 14 tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This Greek word dwelt means to pitch a tent. And I love how Eugene Peterson phrases it. The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. 
Jesus pitched a tent on your block. He's come and moved into our neighborhood. God is now in the hood. He stepped out of heaven. He slipped into our shoes. He now understands us in a new way. He cries when we cry. He laughs when we laugh. He bleeds when we bleed. Verse 18 reveals a primary aspect of Jesus' mission. He says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. You see, Jesus revealed the Father's intentions. Jesus declared the Father's nature. Jesus came to reveal to us what God was really like. And in verse 17, He tells us, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see, in the law... God was also revealed. But God's righteousness, His justice was what was on display. Whereas through Jesus, God has revealed to us a love that is too expensive to be deserved or earned. You see, Moses says, don't cross that line. Jesus says, I'll bear a cross for you. Moses says, let's go toe to toe. Jesus says, why don't we go arm in arm? Moses says, you better not. Jesus says, if you trust me, I'll make you better. Moses says, you don't deserve God's blessing. Then Jesus serves up a blessing that, yes, we don't deserve. If you want justice, see Moses. But if you're looking for grace, call on Jesus Christ. Now, John the Baptist paved the way for Jesus' ministry. And in chapter 1, verse 23, John quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, to define his ministry. He calls himself the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. In essence, John is saying, look guys, I am just a voice. I'm not a star. I'm not a famous personality. I'm not a celebrity. I'm just a voice. I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. John is saying, I'm not the guy, I'm just a cry. I like that, I thought you would too, but apparently you did it. <laughs> In essence, John is saying, this is not about me, I'm just a cry. This is all about Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 27, John says of Jesus, his sandal strap, I am not worthy to loose. The next day, John pointed to Jesus and he declared, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. For the 2,000 years prior to this, the Jews had been conditioned to offer a lamb as a sacrifice for their sin. Here Jesus is going to be God's ultimate sacrifice. I love verse 40, the story of another witness of Jesus. We're told one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated to Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Everywhere Andrew is mentioned in the Scriptures, he's always bringing somebody to Jesus. I like that. Hey, why don't we be an Andrew this week and follow his example? The next day, Jesus called Philip, who in turn spoke to Nathaniel. And in verse 45 records Philip's witness. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Of course, though, Nathaniel was skeptical. He knew of Nazareth's seedy reputation. Hey, Nazareth was a town that sat at the crossroads of several caravan routes. 
which meant that it had the flavor of a truck stop. It was the kind of town you would expect to produce a son of a gun, not the son of God. And that's why Nathaniel scoffs. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? But I love Philip's response. He says, come and see. You see, Nathaniel was a skeptic, but he was an honest, open-minded skeptic. And when Jesus told him where he had been before Philip found him, information that was impossible for Jesus to have known, Nathaniel suddenly believed, oh yes, maybe he is the Messiah. Nathaniel was impressed by Jesus' supernatural knowledge, but in essence, Jesus tells him, buddy, you ain't seen nothing yet. He tells him in verse 51, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. It was a reference to Genesis chapter 28 in Jacob's ladder. Jacob saw a ladder extending from earth to heaven and the angels going up and down on it. And in essence, Jesus is telling Nathaniel that he is going to become that ladder between God and man and that no one can come to the Father except through him. Here's a quick summary of John chapter 1. Jesus is the Logos. He is the life. He is the light. He is the lamb. And he is the ladder. He'll be all that to you and more if you'll just come to him and embrace him as your Lord and Savior. In John chapter 2, Jesus is invited to a wedding. Have you invited Jesus to your wedding, to your marriage? What a difference it makes. And like most weddings, this wedding was a happy, exuberant occasion until the wine ran out. That's when Jesus' mother Mary, who must have known the host, approaches Jesus to bail her friend out of some embarrassment. In verse 4, Jesus makes it clear to Mary that whatever he does will not be because of her request. It's kind of sharp with her. And this is an important point, I think. Many people pray to Mary thinking that she has some clout with Jesus. He must listen to Mary because, well, you listen to your mom. But not so. That's a false assumption. And here it's proven. What Jesus is going to do, he's going to do it. Not because his mother told him to. It's interesting, though, to note the final words of Mary recorded in Scripture. In verse 5, she tells her friend's servants, Whatever Jesus says to you, do it. Hey, there are many people these days who pray to Mary. They worship Mary. They serve Mary. They exalt Mary unduly. But understand, if Mary were here today, the last thing you would, she would do is to tell us to worship her or serve her or even listen to her. Her last words were, whatever Jesus says to you, you do it. Jesus tells the servants to fill six water pots with water, then dip in and serve the master a drink. What has gone in as water, though, comes out as wine. A molecular miracle takes place. And we know that it was real wine from the master's comment in verse 10. Usually the good wine was poured out first, and then when the crowd was a little tipsy, then they'd serve the cheap stuff. But just the opposite occurs this time. Jesus has saved the very best to last. Guys, Jesus is still in the business of turning water into wine. He can take the water of our lives, the mundane, boring, drab duties of everyday life, and Jesus can interject His Spirit and make them sweet. 
Has your life been infected with boredom? It reminds me of the airline flight attendant who made the announcement, for lunch today, you'll have a choice of chicken marengo, beef burritos, or fruit salad. And then she commented, and if you don't get your first choice, please don't be distressed. All of our entrees taste very much the same. You know, after a while, that's what happens in life. It all starts to taste the same. Experiences become blah and boring. Pleasures become bland. It's the same old, same old. Life tastes like water. But Jesus turns the water into wine by fermenting our lives with the Holy Spirit. He lifts us out of the rut. He turns our life into an adventure. He replaces our blahs with His supernatural bubbly. Have you taken a drink of Jesus lately? He can restore the sparkle and the flavor and the excitement and energy to your life. Remember, too, where this miracle took place. Where he first turned water into wine. Remember, it was at a wedding. Perhaps tonight you feel stuck in a boring marriage. Holy matrimony has turned into holy monotony. It's been said... Marriage is like a violin. After the music stops, the strings are still attached. Is there a hope for a boring marriage? You bet there is. Jesus can spice up your marriage just like he did this wedding in Cana. Remember who you both serve. Get on your knees. And just like the servants in the story, do what Jesus tells you to do. I don't know your marriage. No one knows what's going on, but Jesus does. And if you'll bring him what you've got. You see, he said, pour water into these pots. And and so he went and he poured poured the water. They, They gave him what he had. And you might not have much left to give, but you're still committed. You still got a vow. And you're still married. Put what you've got into the pot and then do what he tells you to do. You'll be surprised what will happen. Jesus can take your marriage and transform it and turn the water back into wine. The Jewish leaders had turned the temple into a target. It was tragic. They were selling these marked up sacrifices. They had prohibited the secular shekels from being made as offerings and they made the people pay a temple token. But of course, there was a fee for the exchange. In short, the Jews were making a buck off God and Jesus had had enough. He takes a cat of nine tails and he literally whips the place into shape. You know, if Jesus were to brandish his whip again, I wonder how many churches would get whipped into shape. When the church's motive is to pad its coffers rather than to offer help, and ministry to people, then it does need to be cleaned up. In chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus gives a sign. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, Jesus makes this statement while standing in the hallways of Solomon's temple. And this was a magnificent structure. Remember, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Just the renovations that Herod had made to this temple had taken 46 years to complete. 
Everyone was floored by Jesus' comment because they thought he meant the building they were standing in, whereas Jesus was in reality speaking of his body. You see, the temple was God's dwelling place on earth, yet God no longer was dwelling in brick and mortar. He was dwelling in human skin right there among them. The temple Jesus would raise up in three days was his resurrected body. In chapter 3, we tune in to the original Nick at night. A rabbi by the name of Nicodemus visits Jesus under the cover of darkness in pursuit of more light. Now understand, Nicodemus was a Jewish scholar. He was schooled in the Old Testament scriptures. He had read the covenant, the new covenant that God had made to Ezekiel and to Jeremiah and to the Jews that had returned from Babylon. And remember what God promised them. God promised to return to Jews to the land. He promised to then regenerate and revive their hearts. And then third, to reestablish his kingdom to Israel. In other words, return them logistically, regenerate them spiritually, and then restore them politically. Those three promises made up the new covenant. Now, in Nicodemus's mind, the first two promises had already been fulfilled. The Jews had returned to the land. And he had mistakenly viewed the legalistic fervor of the Pharisees as this spiritual revival. In his thinking, the next step was for God to reestablish the kingdom politically to Israel. But Jesus slows him down. Wait a minute, Nicodemus. Yes, the Jews have been returned to the land. But here's the problem. They still lack a new heart. They still lack a regenerated heart. And before I can reestablish the kingdom, they have to have this new heart. He challenges Nicodemus' understanding in verse 3. He says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus says to be part of this kingdom that's coming, you first have to be born again. You see, at first, Nick assumes that Jesus is talking about a natural, physical birth. But not so. He's speaking of a supernatural, spiritual birth. The Old Testament prophets had promised that the Holy Spirit would come and like water would cleanse man's sinful spirit. The Spirit would rekindle spiritual life within the heart of man. That person would literally be made brand new, born again. In verse 10, Jesus gently rebukes Nicodemus. These are truths that he should have known. He says, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Jesus has just given Israel's greatest Bible teacher a vital Bible lesson that he had overlooked. And Jesus isn't through. He continues to talk out of the Old Testament. He illustrates his work on the cross by recalling the brazen serpent that Moses erected in the wilderness. You see, when the people were bitten by the poisonous snakes, Moses' serpent provided the cure. One look proved to be the antidote. All this was symbolic. In the Old Testament, brass was a symbol of judgment. The serpent was a reminder of sin. And on the cross, God judged sin by becoming sin for us. The gaze of faith at the crucified Christ is all that's needed now for us to be healed. The cross of Christ is the anecdote. John 3, verses 16 and 17. Oh, it's music to our ears. I hope you have it memorized. If you don't, do it this week. It's our Bible scan memory verse. Here it is. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son 
that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Why don't we read it together? You ready? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And here's verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. God loves us a bunch. So much so that He's gone to great extremes for us to be saved. I read recently where research estimates that 100,000 people die in the United States every year from diseases that are preventable by proper vaccines and medications. Can you believe it? 100,000 needless deaths. But you know the same phenomena occur spiritually, even to a greater degree. God has provided the anecdote for sin. The only reason a person dies in their sin is because they're too stubborn, too prideful to receive his remedy. John had known the limelight. For several months, he had occupied Israel's center stage. Now his popularity was being eclipsed by that of Jesus. And yet John was delighted. In verse 30, he says of Jesus, He must increase, but I must decrease. You see, John rightly understood, this is not about me. Something bigger is at stake here. Have you come to that conclusion? Have you come to that conclusion in your work for the Lord, even in your service to your church? Hey, this is not about you. This is not about me. There's something much bigger at stake here. This is about Jesus. Guys, glorifying Christ is easy when we're making a name for ourselves at the same time. But are we willing to bow out in order for others to behold Christ? That's what John was willing to do. In chapter 4, Jesus passes through the city of Samaria. Now it's noon. And the sun is hot. Jesus has been hoofing it all morning. And his dogs need a break. So he sits down by the watering hole while his disciples go into town for bagels. I guess it was bagels. It was for something, for breakfast, for food. Suddenly, though, up walks a Samaritan woman who comes to the well to draw water. Now, understand, the Jews and the Samaritans, man, they despised each other and they lived very segregated lives. The Samaritans, you see, were a mixture of Jew and Gentile. And the hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans ran so deep that even to talk to a Samaritan was something that a Jew was not willing to do. This is why it surprised the woman that Jesus asks her for a drink. He comes right out and talks to her. The Jews were prejudiced against both Samaritans and women, but not Jesus. Jesus shows that he cares. This woman is even more surprised when Jesus offers her a drink. But Jesus has a different type of water. He offers her, offers her living water, true spirit water, the water from the well. Oh, it would moisten her throat for a few hours. But that same throat would thirst again. Jesus has water that will quench her thirst forever, that will satisfy her deeper needs. The Holy Spirit is that living water that can moisten a parched soul and keep it satisfied for all eternity. One drink of Jesus satisfies man's deepest needs. Let me ask you, what are you drinking tonight? 
It might not be an evil thing. It might just be anything. What are you trying to satisfy, depending on and leaning on to satisfy your needs tonight? You know, you know so many times we, we stuff all kinds of things down into that hole. We, we try to put a physical thing in a spiritual hole. It, it don't, doesn't fit. Like putting that red round, that square peg in that round hole. It just doesn't fit. You can't meet a spiritual need with a physical thing. It, it doesn't matter what you try to pursue. Whether you're drinking possessions or drinking pleasures or drinking prestige or drinking ambition. You will thirst again. You know, truth in advertising should require disclaimer. On all magazine ads, on all television commercials. Jesus' words here in verse 13 should be seen clearly on the ad. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. I'd love to see that on all beer commercials. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. On all car advertisements, whoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. It should be on every ad, every advertisement. And you should put it on everything. You should just write it above everything in your life. You will thirst again. Get what you want, but when you get it, you'll want more. Spiritual needs are never satisfied with physical stuff. Jesus alone can quench a thirsty soul. What you're really thirsting for tonight is Jesus. And so follow the Sprite commercial. Obey your thirst. Go to Jesus for a drink of living water. Now this woman is tracking with Jesus until he tells her in verse 16, Go call your husband and come here. Whoa, wait a minute. I have no husband. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, You have well said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. Suddenly, he grabbed her attention. How did this stranger know that about me? And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> she had been found out. Her sin had been exposed. The Lord had hit a nerve. So she tries to change the subject by bringing up some thorny theological question. Have you noticed that people try to do that? When it gets personal, when they feel convicted, when you hit a nerve, you know, that's when the guy or gal will bring up some obscure theological dilemma. You know, I've, you know by the way, oh, oh yeah, I'm a sinner, but oh, by the way, can God really create a rock big enough that he can't move? I've always wondered that. How many angels can you put on the head of a pen? You know, anything to kind of divert the subject. And that's what this woman tries to do. The woman wants to know whether God is to be worshipped on Mount Gerizim in Samaria or on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. Which mountain? See, this was another issue that was contested by the Jews and the Samaritans. Well, the right answer was Mount Moriah. But Jesus points out that it was an irrelevant answer because everything was about to change. In the Old Testament, worship involved logistics. When and where mattered. But Jesus was about to change all that. His followers worship God on the plain, in the, on the mountain. They worship Him anywhere, in any time. Worship now is not about altitude. It's about attitude. 
Two things today characterize real worship, spirit and truth. Spirit, personal contact with God. When we worship Him, it should be a personal thing. And then biblical content, we should worship Him in truth. Spiritual contact and biblical content. Spirit and truth should characterize our worship. True worship is a subjective experience grounded in objective truth. Now in verse 25, Jesus tells the woman that He is the Messiah. And notice how she responds. The woman who came to the well at noontime in an attempt to avoid people now runs back into town to tell as many people as possible and bring them to Jesus. She says in verse 29, Come see a man who told me all things I ever did. And in verse 39, we're told that many believe because of her testimony. In the meantime, the disciples return with the bagels. And they want Jesus to eat. And in verse 34, he replies, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Guys, again, Jesus is our example. Real satisfaction in life comes from doing the will of God. Doing what God has put you on this earth to do. Hey, when your food is to do the will of God, you can pig out and never get plump. Jesus also says in verse 35, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. Man, there's needy souls all around us tonight. You know, there is a whole generation today with a hole in its heart. And I'm convinced that people today are more eager to hear the gospel than you and I as Christians are to share it. And when will we realize that the harvest is ripe and we'll get out and start picking the fruit? The masses wanted a sign, but one man took Jesus at his word. He had faith. In verse 50, Jesus tells the nobleman, Go your way, your son lives. And we're told, So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And when the nobleman got home the next day, he inquired as to the time that his boy's fever broke. His servant said that it was about the seventh hour. He thought back, and that is the exact moment that Jesus uttered those words. Hey, you know, you can't go wrong when you take Jesus at his word. The public pool at Bethesda was regarded as a place of supernatural healing. The crippled and the infirm, they would lay by the pool hoping for a divine miracle. In chapter 5, verse 4, we're told that an angel would at times stir the water. And the first person in the pool after the water had been stirred was healed. Now, on Jesus' visit to the pool, he approached a man who had been lame for 38 years. And he asked the man what seems at first to be a silly question. Jesus says to him in verse 6, do you want to be made well? Of course he does. That's why he's sitting by this pool. But look at his response. Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. You see, in the beginning, his desire was to be healed. But now all he musters is excuses. See, he has no plan here to remedy the problem. All he's got is excuse. All he's got is why he, he, he's not going to be able to be healed. In other words, this man has accepted his condition. You would think he wants to be healed, but in reality he doesn't. He's accepted his condition. He's concluded that it's easier to adapt and to live with his problem than it is to overcome it. Guys, this lame man is not alone. There are many people who have capitulated to their problems. 
They've given up hope for a cure. They've hidden their lack of faith behind a host of excuses. And they have decided that to live with the problem is easier than trying to change it. They've made the conclusion that it's easier just to live with less than God's best. That's why Jesus cuts to the chase. He doesn't say anything about the angel or the waters. or He says straight to the man. He says, rise, take up your bed and walk. And as soon as this man expresses a willingness, the power he needs to obey is unleashed in his life. And guys, it never happens reverse in reverse. Don't say, oh, when God gives me the power, then I'll try. It doesn't work that way. No, you have faith enough to try. You bring willingness to the table and then God will meet it with his power. No sooner is this lame man freed from his infirmity, from the sin that had caused his sickness, than the legalists come to want to try to fence in his freedom. This man's walking, and all they're worried about is that he's doing it on the Sabbath day. You know, there are people today who try to place parameters around the work of God. They want to tell God what he can and can't do, when and where he can do it. In my opinion, the real lame man is the legalist. You know, there's still people today who feel it's their duty to tell God what he can and can't do. I think that's horrible. In verse 14, Jesus finds this man. He's now walking after 38 years. And rather than rules, Jesus gives him encouragement to continue to walk, but to walk in a repentant attitude. Imagine Jesus heals on the Sabbath and the Jews want to kill him. You see, legalism causes an irrational blindness. The law brings death. It's Jesus that brings life. Let me ask you tonight. Are you following a set of rules? Or are you following Jesus? John chapter 5, verse 18, is an insightful verse that reveals the logic and the thinking of these Jewish leaders. We're told the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Understand how the Hebrews thought plants begat plants, animals begot animals, humans begot humans, God begets God. And so when Jesus called God his father, it was in essence a claim to his own deity. The law of Moses required two or three witnesses to substantiate a testimony. And that's why Jesus says in verse 31, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. In other words, I'm going to bring two or three witnesses to the table here. In fact, Jesus brings five witnesses to the table to verify who he is. Verse 33 talks about John the Baptist. Verse 36, his own miracle spoke of the fact that he was God. In verse 37, at his baptism, the Father spoke from heaven. In verse 39, Scripture prophesied of Jesus And in verse 46, even Moses spoke of Jesus as the Messiah. There was plenty of evidence to convince the Jews of the deity of Jesus. The problem was that they didn't want to listen. And Jesus tells them in verse 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. Author John Phillips, he makes this comment. He says, the Jews never had a false Christ until they rejected the real Christ. Then they had a whole series of pseudo-messiahs who deceived them by the thousands. 
That is exactly what Jesus warned them would happen. John chapter 6 opens with two familiar stories. The miracle of the multiplication, the five loaves and the two fishes that feed over 5,000 and Jesus' midnight walk on the water. Not only did the wind and the waves obey Jesus, but so did the atoms and the molecules in those five barley loaves and those two fish. It's interesting, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. And it's that miracle that provides the backdrop of the dialogue that takes place the next day between Jesus and the multitudes who had followed him. In verse 26, Jesus points out that to most people, he had simply been a meal ticket. They had followed his miracles, not him. They viewed Jesus as a way to fill their stomach with food. You know, bread and circuses. That was the Romans' formula for keeping the masses happy. Did you know that in ancient Rome, they had 93 holidays a year? 93? They realized that it was cheaper to entertain people than to put down revolts. And it was an indictment of the superficial tastes of its citizens to trade out their freedom for bread and circuses. But you see, this bread and circus mentality, it persists. There are some believers who serve Jesus for what they can get out of him rather than for who he is and what he's done. Let a slick preacher stand up and say, oh, come, come and follow me. Jesus will make you successful. He'll make you rich. He'll make you happy. And trust me, suddenly people will come out of the woodwork. They'll start following that guy like the Pied Piper, the rats following the Pied Piper. It's tragic. God wants us to serve Him, but with no strings attached. God wants you to serve Him because of what He's already done, not what you think He might do. God wants to be more than just your meal ticket. He wants to be Lord. He wants to be God. Some of the Jews asked Jesus in chapter 6, verse 28, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? This is the question that every cult and every false religion tries to answer. Islam responds... We'll fast the month of Ramadan. Hinduism says, torture your body and master your physical appetites. Catholicism answers, do penance and make confession to the priest. Judaism declares, keep the law and the traditions of the elders. But God himself has only one requirement. There is only one thing you need to do to please God. We're told in verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. You want to please God? You want to do God's work? Just one thing. Believe and trust in Jesus Christ. Guys, there are only two religions in the world. Christianity and all the rest. Every religion in the world other than Christianity says, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. Here are the five laws. Here are the seven principles. It's all what you can do for God. But Jesus communicates just the opposite. He says, look at the cross. There's nothing that we can do for God. That's why God has done all the work for us. Look at the cross. There's nothing that we can add to it. All we can do is trust and follow Jesus. In chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. 
You see, in the ancient world, bread was everyone's basic food. It was the staple of life. And Jesus is saying that he contains all of the nutrients, all of the fiber, all of the minerals, all of the protein, all of the vitamins that we need. Jesus is all that we need. Feed on the bread of life. He'll be to you a source of strength and satisfaction. Jesus also calls himself the manna sent from heaven. Verse 41 and 42 reveal that the Jews took this too, that he came from heaven as a claim, another assertion of his deity. In verse 51, Jesus says, If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And then he adds in verse 56, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now, this was some tough talk for the typical Jew to stomach. The law forbid the eating of flesh and the drinking of blood. And Jesus deliberately uses this difficult language to separate from out of the crowd the serious followers and the fickle masses. For people who are only concerned about filling their bellies with food, such talk was repulsive and disgusting. But for those who are interested in trying to meet a deeper need, a spiritual need, Jesus' words brought hope and life. You see, Jesus was the divine diet. And he is today the divine diet to satisfy man's deepest hungers. Even Jesus' own disciples, though, were confused about the figurative language that Jesus had used. And that's why he has to explain to them in verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. In other words, don't take these things literally. I'm talking to you about spiritual things. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Afterwards, Jesus quizzes his disciples. Now that they know the free lunches are over, will they still follow him? And verse 66 says that some of them failed the test. We're told from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Guys, Jesus' words are still spirit in life. They feed the soul like bread feeds the belly. But here's the question. Are you hungry for what Jesus offers? You see, with Jesus, materialism is not on the menu. You know, if you're just looking at Jesus as a way to get a new car or a bigger bank account or a better job, then you're not reading the menu. Jesus serves up spiritual things, spiritual growth, spiritual strength, spiritual satisfaction. And if that's what you want, you've come to the right place. Verse 67 tells us, Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? Boy, here's a moment of truth. Are these 12 disciples, are they among the fickle crowd? Are they among the sincere followers? And I love Peter's response. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else would we turn? If you want spiritual sustenance, Jesus is the only place serving it. Also, Peter says, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ the Son of the living God. Verse 70 tells us that Peter was speaking for everyone except Judas. And there we have the first six chapters of John. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you, Lord, for speaking to our hearts in so many ways. Lord, help us to discern 
those lessons you're aiming at us, those things that you want us to apply this coming week. Lord, we want to be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.